0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Dan Breslin to discuss getting started as a wholesaler, wholesale markets, what wholesalers need to do in a recession, and much more. Dan is the founder and president of Diamond Equity Investments, a real estate investment company wholesaling and flipping properties in Philadelphia, Chicago, Atlanta, Miami, and Tampa. Dan has been a full-time real estate investor since 2006 and averages 25 deals per month. With April 15th officially behind you, it's never been a better time to start tax planning for 2019 and the years ahead. Our Tax Strategy Foundation engagement is a multiple call series that walks you through the tax strategies you'll need to reduce your tax bills. At the end of the series, we'll give you a tax strategy blueprint that summarizes each strategy and what actions you'll need to take to implement them. And if you need assistance throughout the year, our team is there to help you every step of the way. There's no need to pay more taxes than necessary. Head over to realestatecpa.com and fill out the form on the Become a Client page to get started today. And without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Dan, thanks for coming on the show today. Would you mind giving us a little bit of a background on who you are and how you got into the real estate space?
2: That's cool. So
0: I, uh, I've been in since 2006. I
2: was kind of like flunked out of life. I was a car salesperson and I had done you know odds and end jobs, painting, uh, electrical work contracting, basically anything to keep the bills on. I was like 25, 26 years old and I'd gotten in a little bit of trouble. So I wasn't really, uh, you know, I didn't have a car, didn't have, uh, any money left and, and got into the business with no, no other options, no other job prospects at the time. Uh, and we went to one of the get rich in real estate seminars and they started talking about wholesaling and they talked about flipping houses and they talked about using other people's money to do that stuff. I remember when I heard all those things was like, Oh my gosh, this is great. I found my calling and I got into the business and you know, it took six months or so to do that first deal, found something for $5,500 in like a really rough area. I ended up uh, putting it under contract, trying to find the money to flip it. Cause I really like, I always wanted to flip houses. That was, I never knew about wholesaling. That wasn't like, Oh, I want to be a wholesaler. It was I wanna get into business and flip houses. Um, we couldn't find the money for that deal. I ended up putting it on Craigslist for $11,500. And it sold full price, maybe like a week later, went to settlement, you know, a week after that. And so three weeks after that lead had come in, I was sitting there with the $6,000 check in my hand and, you know, thinking that I was on to some. So fast forward to today, where are you currently in your real estate career? Uh, cool. Good question. So I... At that time, split up with my daughter's mother. She moved to Chicago. That was 2006. So, being a dad became, you know, weekend visits whenever we could afford plane tickets both ways. Uh, So, it was always like a dream of mine to move to Chicago. Like, oh my gosh, I just want to do that. And, you know, I tried a few times and failed. But that beginning from starting with that first wholesale deal and eventually building the systems. And then eventually, by it was, you know, years and years later before I. Developed the systems in Philadelphia that allowed me not to have to go out to the living room every day and really find the right people, the partners that I have that I'm blessed to have to this day, that allowed me to even consider like moving out of state uh, and thinking that I wouldn't have to leave the other city, you know, Philadelphia behind. And because I was successful there in Philadelphia, it was always a little bit of a crutch holding me back from going to Chicago. So when I finally made the move in 2015, beginning of 2015, with the right people in place, uh, that market continued to grow. I learned how to go into other markets. We opened Chicago. We opened Tampa because it was really cold in the wintertime here. When I got here in Chicago, it was January, and it was uh, it looked like uh, you know the big like icebergs were kind of floating out. You know the big flat icebergs in Lake Michigan out the window were like floating. You know you could see like the abominable snowman riding one of them. <laughs> Um, so we did Tampa, thinking that I would like have the you know write off business expense trips down there. I've done that once or twice. It never turned into what I thought. But then I did enter Atlanta because of the heat in the market and because I had an introduction to somebody I knew moved there who was a really top notch partner and still is to this day. Uh, and it was a very similar situation that was why I entered Miami and it was a person who kind of came to the forefront. So now we have all five of those markets cooking. Uh, We've probably done 45 deals, 50 deals on our best month. We average about 18 to 20 deals per month right now in those markets. Of all the deals that we do, a few hundred deals a year, about like eight, 10% are fixing flips Um, The rest are all wholesale deals. So the way we view our business is that we're, you know, wholesaling to find the ones that fit well for our resources in whichever market it's in, whether that's private money willing to participate in deals. A lot of that is geographically driven, Uh, whether that's, you know, our contractors are available. That's obviously geographically driven. Um, so in Chicago and in Philadelphia, where I've been and where I'm present, we have a more robust uh, team of contractors. And then Atlanta, you know, follows us up for the flips and, and same kind of deal. Um, in so far in Miami and Tampa, it's a little slower moving and more competitive market for us, and it's it's a little bit difficult to get deals that make sense to actually do the work, fix, and then turn around and sell. Uh, there's a lot of I don't know what justification they have, but they're paying outrageous prices cash buyers like in Miami so that you know it's why do the work we can't do the work we can't even be competitive with our offer to the seller and then turn around a wholesale. we can turn around a wholesale deal and still make twenty thirty thousand dollars but to try and buy it at a price that's low enough to justify putting into contracting in the Miami market and then turn around and make twenty thousand dollars your ability to put any deals at all sort of goes away because of the competition in the market
1: so that's kind of the
2: long version I guess
1: that was fascinating. <laughs> that was <laughs> quite a fascinating story. So question, you know, a lot of people are talking about a potential recession. Nobody knows when. It's like two years, five years, 10 years. What makes a good wholesale market? And as a wholesaler, how can you potentially protect yourself from any sort of downside?
2: Well... I mean, that is a good question. So you got a couple different angles of a wholesale deal. You have the seller side of the equation, you have the buyer side of the equation. So what we're dealing with in Miami, and I think that being in five markets has given me a little bit of a unique perspective on, you know, the wholesalers markets and function of them and the spreads that happen in these different markets. Um, so, you know, when the recession comes typically the problem I've been through it and I was ill prepared. So I still have this, you know, nagging fear in the back of my mind that I'm going to be, you know, moving back to my mom's house, you know, on the couch again, because that happened before. That's part of the story that, I, you know, that we don't need to get into today. But what it was that would drive your ability to continue to generate revenue is to find the people and align with the people who are the real go-to buyers in that market. So right now the market, it's hot, wholesalers in every market, including myself, have the luxury of you know soliciting multiple offers on properties. Well, for the most part, you know, the people participating and buying in a lot of those deals in this kind of market, they're not going to be the ones, or they may be the ones at a different price point with a different strategy, buying, buy, and hold stuff, that kind of thing. Uh, they're gonna want a little bit better of a discount when the recession comes. People will still. Buy houses, but you know the buyers from the wholesale perspective are going to tighten up on their offers, and there's going to be less of them. So you can't count on you know the guy watching you know lady, the couple watching HGTV who cashed out their IRA, never listened to a single podcast in their entire life, never read a book on real estate. They watch HGTV, they went out, they overpaid for the property, they do all the work themselves, and they sell it, and then they they bring it all back, and it feels like a profit, but it's not the kind of profit that the you know, the uh, savvy investors who spend the time finding out what, you know, what we can actually do out here in real estate um, get. So those buyers are squeezed out typically when the recession comes. They're not excited about it. They're laid off from the regular job. They're just not able to stomach emotionally what happens in the news and what happens in, you know, the the economy's numbers. So they're not going to continue. So you have a limited number of wholesale buyers that you have to be a little more Cognizant of the relationship that you have with them. And it's, you know, it's the time for wholesalers to be doing lunch with buyers and really know who the actual players are. You can do research on cash buyers and see who's bought multiple properties. There may be and probably will be different cash buyers who are the whales in those days than are now. They may not be in real estate yet. They may be in real estate, but you know, not buying at the same volume that will happen then. So paying attention to the buyers on the wholesale side is important. Also, understanding. If you're a wholesaler, what is going through the mind of that buyer in the recession, that's going to be that that buyer needs to put together a product that's ultra competitive with everything else in the marketplace. And what that means is they got to come in at uh, a listing price around or a slightly lower listing price than the highest comps that you see in the market. And it's got to be rehabbed at an above average quality level compared to that highest retail comp. So it better be like right on par with that, you know, retail high watermark comp that we see in the market. Um, You know, sexier appliance packages are going to be important. That costs money. Sexier bathroom tile packages and uh, fixture packages that costs money. So you're going to see like an increase in rehab costs, a lowering of the sale price. And so from the wholesaler's perspective, be prepared to see no longer setting of the record of the cash sale price, but, you know, your cash price is getting eaten into by the buyers having to adjust their rehab numbers and and their targets on their side. So you have to then go back to the sellers and make a slightly better deal. So where we run into a big situation in a lot of markets, it's like rental inventory in a lot of cities is low priced, you know, bottom dollar inventory. We have in Chicago on the south side, there's a lot of neighborhoods where right now, because the south side has increased in value, we have at least enough equity in this market to make these deals and a lot of these deals we're making 8 10 12 15 grand not like we're making 70,000 on each one like was happening in the last boom when things were mm-hmm. ridiculous we're making little small fair profits to keep the market moving and we're doing our function to you know move that inventory and that product through the system get it renovated back on the tax roll etc so the challenge will come in you know if everybody stops buying i i don't think we'll see the same type of pullback I, i'm like willing to bet, and I'm betting like hundreds of thousands of dollars in marketing every month that we're not going to see the same pullback in pricing like we saw last time because we don't have the same underwriting bubble. But you know, in the recessions, typically the sellers are a little more responsive to the direct advertising and things of that nature. But you'll see, like at least last time go around, it may not be the the same this time. But uh, when there's not buyers coming through the MLS, you're having listed people properties listed on the MLS, you know, sitting there and not selling. And then now they're a little more receptive to realistic cash offers that us investors can make.
1: Yeah, a lot of of that makes a lot of sense. I can totally see the sellers in the down market wanting to kind of open up a little bit more to alternative ways to liquidate and offload, uh, which also creates opportunities for buying on the buy side as well. Those folks that are, that have positioned their assets well enough to be liquid during any form of a downturn. Uh, there's tons of opportunities there too. Dan, we work with a lot of flippers across the United States. Mm-hmm. And one complaint that we get from all of our flippers, it doesn't matter what market, is that the wholesalers kind of stink. Like they just don't bring good deals. But it's very clear that you're crushing it. So how are you differentiating yourself? And how is your business standing out from the crowd of, of like mom and pop wholesalers?
2: Well, again, it's a couple of different things too. So like, you know, a lot of these wholesalers, including myself, are probably making money on offensively high priced deals compared to what these, you know, flippers who are attending podcasts and who are savvy enough to figure out the business and who are probably sending direct mail themselves. And, you know, they're just like me. I'm kind of spoiled. I want the best of the best when it comes to a flip deal. So, you know, how can you hate on the guy if the guy's out there making money? It's just not necessarily a viable source like it would be a viable source, you know, later on in, in the recession. And, then, you know, the more important thing is not all wholesalers are created equal. Typically, your wholesaler is like me. He, he got in the business with no job. He's broke. He's living at his mom's house. He, he doesn't know anything about value in real estate. He's doing his best to put some deals together and, you know, function the best he can while he does like his apprenticeship in the real estate market, kind of like I did uh, all those years ago. So, you know, the wholesaler in general is like a a limited experience, limited, you know, I I don't want to say like limited intelligence, but definitely limited experience. and, And it definitely attracts because of its low barrier to entry a lot more people. So it's kind of like, you know, the music business. So like, as for fun, I have artists that I'm developing and I like to write songs and hooks. And we shot a video the other day with helicopters (laughs) and, you know, the whole nine, we got like no chance of getting through, breaking through. We haven't broken through with these guys. And we do work with people who've broken through and performed on stage with Biggie and Tupac um, working in, in our circle and putting together production and everything. So the chances of success are very Slim even for a wholesaler. But the cool thing about wholesaling is like you can get lucky and still bring in a few checks with, you know, a comma and it can be like life-changing money. But I've seen a lot of people come and go from the wholesaling game and never, you know, a lot of people who are savvy and who, you know, work their way through, a lot of them just start flipping houses. It's less work. You know, I've considered myself, it's like I got, you know, 18, 20 people all around the country in the markets that we're in. And like now I do it out of motivation for them. It's not motivation for money. If it was motivation for money, like, you know, I could just flip my handful of houses and not have like scale, scale, scale. And I'm not interested in scale, scale, scaling like any further in any other markets than I am. You know, it was one thing led to another and the people were introduced. Now I'm, you know, time limited and, and pulling back a little bit. So you gotta you gotta figure that uh, that that's basically what they're running into is you know the wholesalers either are a making money who are good at it or b they're just learning the business and so there's not a lot of uh, and a lot of times like some of the flippers they don't have any sources of deals either like leaning on the wholesaler to bring them a source of a deal like I spend a lot of money. We spend almost a million dollars a year in marketing. I mean, it's, you know, $56,000 in, in letters went out in the last, you know, they're, they're in process now, but that's just for the month of October. Um, so most flippers aren't going to be able to stomach, you know, the kind of investments it takes to keep the wholesale business running. So I have no qualms about having to take a higher offer from somebody who wants to live in the property who can pay cash over this guy is trying to build a fix and flip and spends, you know, zero marketing budget. And he's like offended that I won't sell him the deal. So there's like a, you know, there's a lot of supply and demand and economics that plays into it also.
0: You know, a lot of people ask when it comes to the flipping versus wholesale and business, they have this like formula where they'll buy a wholesale property or they'll determine that it's a good wholesale opportunity if they can buy it for 70% of their ARV, less the repairs, less the, the assignment fee they want to make. Is that something that you follow or how do you determine when's a good time to buy a wholesale opportunity? You mean like, how do I price? Yeah. How do you value that transaction?
2: I guess we use, you know, similar to that. We, I don't know that we're ever like, we want to make 15,000 on this. I think in most cases for us, we have to close on a lot of these deals. So like a lot of wholesalers never close on anything. We have to close on it. So we're bringing cash to the table and everything. And like, if there's not 20, 25,000 in spread on the table like it's not going to be worth it for us to close on it. So when we negotiate, we probably want an offer range somewhere around that. Like, you know, like you said, to 70%, then putting 20,000 in there. And and that's a good, you know, that's a good, simple rule of thumb. But you get into certain areas, like we've experienced since 2015 in South Philadelphia, like we've seen around the Beltline in Atlanta. These are gentrification neighborhoods. And like I study gentrification trends and I really watch the numbers in, in every zip code of the neighborhoods that we're investing or the cities that we're investing. And, you know, there's areas there where it might make sense to go up to 75. might make sense to go up to 80% because by the time I've had deals that took three months to clear title and there was another $20,000 in value because it was three months later while we had the property under contract. So when we're in rapidly moving markets, it makes sense to tie stuff up. And we see wholesalers step in crap and get lucky on deals in those kind of areas all the time. And so again, it's like, You know, as a flipper, I'm yelling at the guy, saying, well, we don't want you to, you know, these numbers don't make any sense. And then someone ends up buying it. And then by the time they rehab it nine months later, the neighborhood's gone up $60,000 additionally, and they still make a bunch of money. And this is a scenario that's played out repeatedly all over in markets across the United States. That's been the story so far. Now, since we've seen lower year over year numbers in the last three or four months in real estate, I believe. My analysis of the numbers the slowdown that we've seen is not a oversupply of inventory, but it's a pricing of the inventory that's depressed demand. So I think we still have plenty of latent demand with the millennial age people continuing to buy homes and start to move out of the apartment dwelling life as they start having kids, even if it's at a lower rate, even if they're getting married at a lower rate and buying homes at a lower rate. It still is going to happen as they get older. So even with that lower rate, we're going to see the uptick in demographics continue to push demand. So we still have demand here. It's just that the supply costs too much. And so the pricing of the economics is the reason I believe we're seeing that slowdown. Quite different from 2008, 9, 10, when we have way too much new construction had taken place to the tune of, you know, three to five hundred thousand units per year. In addition, for, you know, several years running to give us such a glut of inventory, you know, last time around. I know that really wasn't the answer you were looking for.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love the wave of optimism. That's good, because we've been talking to a lot of people who are like, the recession is right around the corner. So I like hearing that, that we still got some demand there, and that's good. I mean, you're in the trenches every single day, so you probably know better than anybody, definitely better than us.
2: I mean, one, uh, if I could, one other thing that I'm noticing is that the pricing increase, it's hard to say and take, oh, here's the house in America, and it's going to go up in value, period. And take, you know, from million dollar homes down to $20,000 homes and then try to put them all in the same box because the median price home on average hasn't sold. But we're seeing a lot of neighborhoods, especially like the south side of Chicago, there is a ton of inventory that still has work to be done, to be brought through the system. And there's homeowners still buying there. And we're seeing the areas grow into the lower priced areas. This doesn't mean they're turning completely gentrified. They're just increasing in value. But it's more of an intrinsic value thing for a lot of those houses and a lot of those neighborhoods. And we're seeing those like rental entry level houses in those neighborhoods, you know, satisfying some of the demand where people are having to settle on the neighborhood because they can own that house and get into that area. So we're seeing like a lot of South suburb Chicago's areas, uh, a lot of the stuff in Atlanta, Atlanta has been on fire, but these are all entry level houses in an area where jobs are being created like nonstop. Now, if I take Miami and I say, you look at these houses going for three and $400,000, maybe the Miami stuff is hard to justify you know, in the other areas, it's like the low end is starting to kind of kind of come up and, and maybe like satisfy that demand. So we're seeing like, yeah, that the overall price hasn't stopped, but there's still these other areas of the market you can continue to win because we don't have an extra twenty-five thousand unit subdivision coming on in that same market that's gonna
1: like totally kill prices. I love it, love it. So you mentioned that you you flip around 10% of your total deals. How are you making that determination on whether you should just wholesale? or flip a deal? Like, is it like a estimated dollar value or is it just timing? What does that look like for you?
2: It's definitely timing. Velocity of money is something that Donald Trump was big on. How how fast can I get in? How fast can I get out? And how much money can I make in that short period of time? So we're always considering the velocity of our money, how much money we're gonna have to put in sometimes I am motivated by putting a lender's money to work. So if I have a lender who has come to me and they have a certain amount of money kind of on on the sideline there and they're ready to do something with that, I try to find a deal to put their money into to keep them in the loop in my network, but I know they're trying to accomplish certain goals or trying to achieve uh, you know, their rates of return for the year. Some of these people, you know, it's their retirement, they're trying to live off the interest. So we try to include them in the deals wherever possible. The other motivating force would be like the contractors, you know, the availability of them to come in and do the work. Maybe they're tied up with three or four jobs. It might make sense for me to just wholesale the property out rather than try to buy it and overburden uh, the crews in that area. And then the other thing is it depends, you know, which market it is, but price point of the rehab, I don't want to get into architectural drawings, I don't want to get into full gut renovations where we're reconfiguring the entire interior of, you know, an entire property. So anything that's more of a cosmetic rehab in the 40 to 50, maybe 60,000 range or less, uh, new kitchens, new bathrooms, new windows, new roof, we can handle all that. But when you get into like pulling permits and having to go through like approvals to get, you know, before we can start construction, not interested in something that's long term. So our rehabs are typically going to be three months or less, and they're going to be, you know, 40 to 60,000, give or take,
0: in construction. So to pull this off, to pull, you know, the the wholesale and, you know, fix and flip operation off kind of sounds like they are almost two halves of one business. What kind of team do you need to pull that off? I mean... I don't subscribe to like
2: the employer-employee model, so I'm I'm more subscribed to like being a mentor and a molder of solid long-term partnerships over the course of time. So I like, I want to make sure that we're kind of evenly getting paid on the deals. It's not like oh I got an acquisition guy and pay him ten percent on the deal. Or, you know, I pay that guy $45,000 a year to manage construction. So, you know, where people bring value is where they're getting paid. So if I have, you know, multiple people involved on a deal, commiserate to what they brought to the table, they're going to get paid on that. So that said, you know, one of my goals is to create like a larger and larger opportunity for people. We have a a lot of people who are like under 30 years old who are working on the team. They're making six figures plus. It's been a life-changing experience for them. One guy came to the table and he was like busting tables and we had to have the hard conversation. Look, man, you're going to have to let the restaurant go so that you can make it succeed here. Um, He's in Spain right now, you know, two week vacation. He's sending money back to his relatives in Mexico. Uh, I think he's going to do six figures or already did six figures for this year. And, you know, he's involved in some of the deals uh, that we just bought, cleaned out, sold, but he's also involved in construction on deals, too. So we kind of like train, teach and mentor all the way along the way with me, you know, each of the decisions we're making. So if someone's in the living room planning a rehab might be one of my other guys, whichever market, doesn't matter. We might be having design conversations, you know, and talking details of rehab, you know, negotiations with the contractor. So it's kind of me being able to multiply myself through the partners, if you will, on my team. Uh, and not all of them are that way. There's some people who have been in business longer than me, who are working with me, who completely manage, you know, their rehab. I don't hear about it, see it see a single photo until the listing goes up. I don't have to do anything, you know, as far as even price the deal. I mean, he's just really good at what he does. So depending on the skill level, where we're at would be like my involvement with those um, decisions, every you
1: know piece of minutia and some of them. And then some of the people are a little more hands off. You mentioned systems at the beginning of the podcast, how you've really systematized your business and you can you can tell by the way that you answered that question. I mean, I heard that you don't have to really be involved in the offer or the sale process. I mean, that's amazing that you've been able to remove yourself like that. So you clearly do have strong, solid systems in place. That's great. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some tax and accounting. This is a tax and accounting podcast. So we're going to jump in there. Just want to know what the greatest tax advice you've ever received has been.
2: I I don't know if it was advice per se, but I know my dad taught me at an early age that when you're in business, you're able to write off the expenses of the business. And that means something completely different to me now than it did way back when. So a few years back when the income, the gross revenue started to climb, the expenses i didn't want to pay any taxes and i know a lot of people oh, i don't want to pay any taxes well that held me back from making a lot of money at one point it was like a subconscious block it was like oh my god i don't want to and finally it was like okay you know what i don't mind cutting you know six-figure tax checks because it means that it was like a six or seven figures that came in through the door that's actually a good thing and what we're actually dreaming about is cutting big tax checks so you know, <laughs> if i could give you the greatest tax advice it's get ready to cut big tax checks uh, but, <laughs> the bigger the tax bill the, the bigger better. the better yeah as long as your accountant did his job then the bigger the better is uh and you didn't screw up your money in the meantime with some expensive you know toys habits etc then yeah that's but uh but when i when i go back to the expense thing it turned into something different over, over time i started seeing the income come in and out of like hey i need to figure out how to get my tax liability down what am i supposed to do with all this money that's coming in and you know, your lifestyle at a certain point, probably around six figures. It's, you know, there's studies said that like from 70 to a hundred thousand dollars, like doesn't really make a huge difference in the standard of living. Fine. You can drive nicer cars. Maybe your kids go to private schools, but like everyone has air conditioning in the house. Everyone at those levels is like able to take vacation and they can, you know, keep food in the fridge. It's like, you really got to jump up to probably like millions of dollars per year to have this like crazy standard of living. So, you know, when I, when I kept my expenses around that, price, uh, my personal expenses, and then I viewed the business expenses and learned how to make them. You know, They were my investments. Like when I invested more money in marketing, more deals come back. And sometimes that takes me three months. Sometimes it takes a year to get all the money back. Uh, my life cycle of the dollar right now in my business is probably between four and six months. And if it's a flip, it's closer to a year by the time the seller lead comes in to when I get paid out. So it's easier for me now after having been been at it for 13 years to have the uh, you know the rotation of the money come in full circle, but it allowed me the confidence early on, knowing I could like write off the expenditures in the business. To, like I'd rather waste money on advertising, learning lessons, and getting better at developing you know that return on my marketing dollar. And it's all a write off, so I didn't have to pay taxes on it. So it was like it alleviated my stress in having to put that money back into the business by knowing
0: that that was write off the whole time, and it was going to improve my tax situation at the end of that year. That's definitely one of the benefits of being in business is that you can write off your expenses and they are tax deductible. And I, I do definitely hear you on this, the point of, you know, when you make more money, you're gonna have to pay higher tax bills. And it's just the way it goes. So you paying more tax isn't necessarily a bad thing in business. But um, if you can mitigate that, that's always great. Um, from a bookkeeping and accounting perspective, um, you know, you're out there doing all these deals. How do you handle or who handles your accounting and taxes within your business?
2: Um, that's part of, you know, the benefit of kind of like personally, the way I have it set up because we do these different partnerships, these are different holding companies. So it's not like, I, like there's a level of trust involved with my partners. A lot of these deals are pretty much handshake at this point. Um, so it would be arduous for me to think I could go out and put together like 50, you know, operating agreements on every deal, or even, you know, a lot of the LLCs, it's not like LLCs we all own together. So they're paying my company directly. And like for a lot of the flips, it's like they're just paying me out my partnership split. So that saves me having to like file for each actual property that comes through the pipeline. So I pay, you know, full tax on that. It's not like a, it's just, I guess, short-term capital gains on that stuff that comes in. It keeps it a little cleaner to have it split up whether the partners are paying into my main holding company Um, And then I have a bookkeeper who handles all the expenses. And then I'd have to personally get in and split some of those different markets. I watch my marketing budgets. I'm the marketing, you know, guy. This is this entire business is for us has, uh, I guess not the entire, but the business is built strongly on like marketing. And that's like why we're successful. So getting better at that, paying attention to that, knowing every dime that I spend on that on a regular basis. That's not something I'm willing to advocate to my accountant. My accountant files my taxes, you know, does the write-offs for my rental properties, you know, kind of goes through a lot of the property ownership pieces and the business ownership pieces when the K-1s come back. But, you know, at the level, you know, that I am, we do total maybe three and a half, four million million a year in revenue. I think it's important for me to still watch all that revenue to make sure that everything is kind of cooking and and paying attention to the numbers. I mean, at some point, maybe that would have to be abdicated to like a comptroller, you know, CFO or somebody else who is uh, supposed to watch that. That's not something I'm willing to do. I'm willing to spend a couple late
1: nights each month making sure that the numbers add up. Very good. What is your favorite piece of technology that you're currently using in your either daily life or your business?
2: Uh, Technology? I mean, we use podio and podio's running our, you know, leads. So like I would say that the podio system has been the one thing that's allowed us to really dig in, get granular, get more detailed, and just all around better, you know, work the business, manage the lead flows allowed us to scale. So without podio, you know, there's other CRMs, I'm sure, but that's definitely the heartbeat of our business right now.
1: Do you guys use podio with Globiflow? We do. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I have like a, a Podio, uh,
2: ex-Podio employee, I think, like one of the early guys, <laughs> who, you know, he, he's kind of like a, a per hour contractor for me, but he's, you know, 20 to 30 hours per week on our systems alone. And so it's highly customized. Uh, yeah. He does handle the Globiflow and, you know, it's a, a lot of cool stuff and a lot more cool ideas that we have out of there. But, you know, it's it's
1: as much as we can do. <laughs> yeah, hi, highly customized. That's the key word there. We, we oh, yeah. use Podio as well until we we basically scaled out of the customizability. We got to a point where we realized, all right, we need to customize it in a different way. And it's so customized now that it's going to be way more work to uncustomize it and just switch to something else. So we pulled the plug, but Podio was amazing for us for multiple years. So yeah, I am a big fan of Podio, especially when you pair it with Globiflo.
0: It It's very cool. Nice. Before we wrap up uh, here today, is there any advice that you want to share with our listeners that you know may help them in their in their real estate career. I mean, the,
2: the real lifeblood, at
0: least from my perspective, and watching a lot of people
2: over the years, is that no matter what you're doing in real estate, you need deal flow. You need to find a pipeline of deals. Whether that's you know quality agents bringing them, I mean, that's kind of like a unicorn. You know, quality wholesaler bringing them is kind of like a unicorn. But whether you have like we did a lot of direct-to-seller deals based on, you know, sending out letters and marketing. It's the same stuff a really good agent or a really good wholesaler is gonna do anyways what we do. We send out marketing, we're putting billboards up and we're you know running TV commercials and the whole nine you know, I guess even in other avenues of real estate, whatever it is. So if you are at another level, you better have agents, you better have sources of people bringing opportunities across your desk for you to look at. You better be making offers on those deals. So, you know, that you got to have leads to look at and then turn them into deals. And so like for me, focusing on that, you know, if I'm making offers all the time, if I can put myself in a position where I'm having conversations about making offers all the time, that's going to make me a more successful real estate investor and that that was you know one of the early revelations i had you know before the the growth that we've experienced in diamond equity investments to doing you
0: know a few hundred deals every year great if our listeners want to get in touch with you what would be the best way to do so
2: so i have a podcast also the REI diamond show real estate investment jewels of wisdom and I bring guests on there for about an hour or so they shut the door same way you know we did, and we just have you know down to the details conversations. Uh, I bring a perspective to the questioning, very detailed, very deep, very thorough uh, to the guests that were some of the that's some of the feedback we've gotten from the audience members. Um, so I put that podcast together, not to sell packages or coaching or anything like that, but I put it together almost as a platform for my own mentorship with the guests that I had the opportunity to have that time with, to, you know, to have them close the door from distractions and just share their wisdom. So I record that. We publish that for, you know, kind of a value add to people in our network. As a bonus early on and, you know, when we, before we started the podcast, I wrote a book, Become a Wholesale Real Estate Master. 165 pages. It was kind of the blueprint or the business plan for diamond equity investments before I started to duplicate myself. I wrote that book to got my thoughts together on actually how I was doing the business. And I shared that with partners who are now still, you know, to this day working somewhere in the business here for diamond equity investments and, and, you know, having successful careers. So you can get a free PDF download of that at reidiamonds.com. And if you want to reach out, say hello, get in touch with me,
0: there's also a contact form there that I personally manage. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on today and uh, look forward to uh, releasing this. All right, cool. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show,
1: please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at realestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.